The Heart, an Orthodox Christian Spiritual Guide by Archimandrite Spiridon Logothetis, the Abbot of the Holy Transfiguration of Our Savior Jesus Christ Monastery in Nafbaktos, Greece. Published in English, 1st edition, 2001. Published by the Brotherhood of the Transfiguration of Our Savior Jesus Christ, Nafbaktos. Forward. In our days there is a great hunger and thirst for an acquaintance with the orthodox way of spiritual life. And may glory be to God, many good books offer the bread of life and the living water of orthodox truths to satisfy the hungry and the thirsty. We add to these truths this small book, which we'll hope will reach their hands. It offers the orthodox Christian teachings of the Holy Bible and Church Fathers in a simple and plain manner for the layman to understand the most basic and fundamental subject of the spiritual life, the heart. The author, mainly interpreting and referring to Holy Scriptures and patristic texts, hopes in this way to help the simple, hungry, and thirsty Christians understand their heart and make this book a major part of their efforts to obtain salvation. Side Harkamandrite Spear Don Logothetis. First, the heart. Every man has two hearts. One is the body's heart, the other is the soul's heart. The good or bad condition of both of our hearts is very important. If something happens to either one, then we have heart problems and our life is in danger, whether it is the life of our body or the life of our soul. Particularly in our spiritual life, the condition and quality of our heart is of great significance. If we have a holy heart, then we are surely holy Christians. If we have a bad heart, then we are surely bad Christians. Unfortunately, many Christians, both clergy and laity, still do not understand this. And although they take great care to appear as externally good, decent, honest, consistent, religious, and loyal people, unfortunately, they care very little, if at all, or almost at all, about having a clean, good, and holy heart. Many Christians managed not to murder, not to seek out a prostitute, not to commit adultery, not to steal. Many managed to become respectable due to their kindness and their good behavior. Many managed to become praised by other people because they made donations to institutions and to the poor. Many also managed to persuade others that they themselves are holy since they have kept all religious obligation and duties. Every one of them is over-concerned with external aspects, forms, and characteristics of the Orthodox Christian way of life. How many, however, are those who take care to put in order those things that cannot be seen, those that the world cannot see, the ones that God only knows, those things hidden in man's heart? We hear advice from many teachers Unfortunately, most of this advice deals with what we have to do and not with what must be in our hearts. Christian parents advise their children. Christian teachers and professors advise their students. Preachers advise their listeners. Spiritual fathers advise those who go and confess to them, and so on. These councils, however, rarely concern themselves with the heart's condition. Most of them are simply concerned with good deeds and good behavior. We must sincerely confess that every one of us, some less, some more, 
has committed this one-sidedness, either by living it or by teaching it, speaking it or in writing, on what we must do and not on how our heart must be. All of us have committed, some less and some more, this preposterous scheme of either living or teaching first what we must do and then what we must be in our hearts. He who writes this does not exempt himself. This, however, is a mistake. For the Orthodox faith, the only thing that is prominent and to which it is necessary to place our greatest interest is the heart's condition. Orthodoxy urges us to first take care of our heart and then look at how we are going to behave or what we are going to do. It is possible that we never need to take care of how we are going to behave or what we are going to do because if we take care to make our heart good and holy automatically, then our actions will become good and holy. On the other hand, if we let our heart become bad, then our actions automatically will become bad and evil. For our actions are directed by our heart. From a good heart come, like an overflow, good deeds, and from a bad heart come, bad deeds. Our Lord has taught us all these things. Here's what he says. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes, nor grapes from briars. In this exact way, the good man brings offerings from the good treasure of his heart's goodness, and the evil man offers evil things from the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. What is the heart? But let us study more systematically the topic that's called the heart. And let us first ask, what is the heart? Many times we hear people speak similar phrases, such as, Will you serve me with your heart? Are you going to serve me with your heart? I love you from the bottom of my heart. I prayed and begged the Blessed Virgin Mary with my heart, and the like. What do all these people mean when they say, with the heart? What then is our heart? Can we perhaps use familiar words to describe it? Let us try using the Holy Scriptures and the Holy Fathers as our sources. The heart is man's feelings, the affect. The heart is man's volition, his will. The heart is man's mind, his cognition. These three elements are together in one unbreakable unity. And we will find these three words expressing the same meaning in the Holy Scriptures and the writings of the Holy Fathers. And many times we will find the word soul having the same meaning as the heart. When we feel something intensely in us, then we are sure that this is an expression or participation of our heart, a strong desire, good or bad, something sorrowful or a disappointment. It is an internal grumbling, a good disposition and a bad disposition. In addition, it is a sensory response or participation in different events with great happiness or with great grief. Things that have a direct effect on our body's heart, making it suffer many injuries due to their effects. When we do something with an internal passion and we suffer for this, then our heart suffers. This happens, for example, when we pray, asking for something with yearning from God. It also happens to those who intensely fall in love, either with another person or even more so with God. The heart suffers. The heart 
enjoys. The heart grieves. The heart is optimistic and hopes. And in these cases, we have the three powers in participation, feelings, mind, and will. Someone might object, saying that the mind can't be the heart. When we say mind, we usually mean our brain. However, according to our Holy Fathers, our mind, or the noose, is found in the heart and uses the brain as an organ to express itself. This is supported by our Desert Fathers and indeed by St. Gregory Palamas. And, quote, this theory was invested with the authority of the synodical decisions of the Constantinople Church. Thoughts, therefore, which we would justifiably say are born in our mind, are truly born in our mind. This mind, however, is located in our heart and not in our brain. The thoughts then come out and go to our brain for screening and for elaboration. I'll give an example and hope to help in the comprehension and acceptance of what I have said so far. Petroleum is created in the Earth's depth, in large underground natural reservoirs. Something similar happens with our thoughts. They're born in the depth of our heart, where our noose is, our mind, like a creative reservoir of thoughts. Exactly as the underground reservoirs are in the Earth's depth, where petroleum is created by different chemical reactions. Next, the brain receives the thoughts from the mind, like a storehouse or reservoir, and examines, processes, and filters them, exactly as it happens with petroleum when it reaches the Earth's surface. Then it is then stored in cylindrical reservoirs and goes on to be filtered through special machines before we can use it. There are other things in the Earth's depth, besides natural reservoirs of petroleum. There are rocks, soil, and water. So there are other things in the heart's depths besides the mind. There are feelings, there are desires and decisions to be made, sorting them out by choices and priorities. Indeed, there are many powers of the soul. The mind is not the heart, nor the heart the mind. The mind is included in the heart, which is much greater than the mind, yet the mind gives birth to the thoughts. From the bottom of the heart, therefore, good or bad thoughts arise. When we say we have to watch our thoughts, we mean to anticipate them from the point where they're created in the heart. If they're good, let them go to the storehouses of the brain to be filtered. But if they're bad, let them be destroyed in their birthplace, the heart, in the section of the heart, which is called mind. With the above example of the petroleum and the earth, we can understand the relationship between mind or noose, thoughts, and heart. Now, respectively, the other powers of the soul, which are located in the heart, can be understood, that is, man's feelings and volitions. Both the good and bad sensations or feelings begin and start from the heart in order to reach our life's surface. Our wants, desires, decisions, and so forth, good or bad, once again are born in the heart, and from there start in order to become behaviors and manners of living, activities, and deeds. We have to emphasize that whatever good is created in our heart, whether it is a thought or a feeling or a want, it must pass through all the heart's places, before it reaches the surface. 
This occurs in order for it to acquire the necessary supplement from all of its parts and then make it appear in our lives. For example, a good thought must unite with a good feeling and with a good volition or will in order to be perfected. Otherwise, it is deficient. It is plain, dry, and it easily becomes cruel, relentless, and in any event, not divine. Also, a beautiful and good feeling isn't enough to secure something good. Relative thoughts and holy will are necessary. We must say the same thing about the desires and for every want. That is, whatever deals with man's volition. Everything that comes out of our heart must be perfect, correct, good, and holy, and not bad, one-sided, or deficient. Otherwise, we will appear and may actually be like some sick people, for example, who exhibit strong and often inappropriate emotional responses which direct their lives. Man, that is, his heart, is not only capable of emotional responses, but has cognition and volition or willpower as well. He is all three together, and for no reason must these elements ever be divided. It is impossible for the mind to talk about things while feelings say the opposite. Something else is said by the feelings and mind, and other things by the volition. The heart, then, is divided, and the person who has a divided heart is a double-minded man, as the Holy Scripture says. This may result in an unstable personality. It is a contradiction of the Orthodox faith to have, on the one hand, for the mind to believe in God, and on the other hand, the desire to want sin. Not that this doesn't happen. It happens to all of us. But this we consider an error. The correct objective is to have all the parts of our heart in one unbreakable unity, for our heart to be one, and the aim for all its powers to be one. St. Maximus informs us about this saying. The mind's aim is to have knowledge of God. The sensation's aim is to desire and to love God. And the volition's aim is to want and to do the Lord's will. Sin interrupts this unity of the heart. It focuses the mind on material things and occupies it with the fleshly and the earthly, as St. Gregory Palamas states. Sin turns sensation and desire toward pleasure and toward prostitution and foolishness, towards the various appetites of voluptuousness, and towards the desire of empty and inglorious glory. It turns the will towards passions where it becomes enslaved. In this way, the heart is severed. And many times we ourselves live or see in others the following dramas of division of the heart. The desire, will, wants to return to God. The mind, however, refuses because it has been carried away by infidelity. The mind wants to return to God. The volition, or the will, though, also refuses because it has been subdued by some passions. There the powers of the heart must be united into one mutual agreement. The heart must be one. The heart's goal. I wonder, what was God's purpose when he created man's heart? St. Nicodemus of the Holy Mountain answers with the following text in his book, Garden of Graces. He says, quote, Brother, you should know that man's heart was created by God, 
so it can always return to God and see its Creator. This is why man's heart was created, so it can see its Creator. When man's heart becomes sinful, it leaves the Creator and thus turns to created things. For this reason, sin is defined in this manner. Sin is the aversion from the Creator and the return to the creation. And when it repents again, it leaves the created and returns to the Creator. Repentance is thusly defined. Repentance is the aversion from the created and the return to the Creator. Therefore, my brother, if you love your heart to be straight and focused toward God, its Creator, do not let it bend down to earthly things. Because in this way it becomes distorted and crooked. When man inclines himself downward to earthly things, his heart seems to be curved. For this, David has named these earthly-minded people heavy-hearted. How long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? But raise your heart upward to the heavens, because this is how the heart becomes upright. Where is the heart? Where is this heart of ours actually located? Our church fathers, who were much involved with the issue of our spiritual heart, place it in our bodily heart. Of course, they don't mean it as an organ comprised of tissues and cells or having veins or arteries. Of course not. Our spiritual heart is not material. They mean it as an immaterial substance which exists on top or inside the bodily heart or in a mysterious place where it is impossible for us to comprehend with our limited brain. However, we accept this teaching of the Holy Fathers with faith in the same way we accept every mystery of our holy faith. This heart, therefore, is God's breath in our bodily heart. On this point, St. Callistos, Patriarch of Constantinople, says, quote, It is astonishingly great that God the Father poured from his spirit a mental or noetic sensation or breath to the bodily hearts of those who rightly believed in the incarnate Logos. The heart is the center. Well, this noetic sensation, God's breath, is our heart, and its place is the center of our spiritual life. It is the center. Here's what St. Nicodemus of the Holy Mountain says about this. Quote, we must, therefore, keep in mind that as the center of a wagon wheel has a certain number of spokes going out to the circumference of the circle and returning to the center where they meet, so also is the heart of man like a center where all the senses, all the powers of the body, and all the activities of the soul are united. End of quote. Thus, as the bodily heart is the center of the body's life, the spiritual heart is the center of our spiritual life. It is the highest thing we have. It is the queen of all our psychological and bodily substance. When this queen has God's grace, then let us listen to St. Macarius of Egypt who wrote about this. Quote, the heart governs the whole body, and when grace conquers the whole heart, then it reigns over all thoughts and parts. This is so because the heart is the place where the mind and all thoughts are found. It is there, therefore, that we must search to see if grace has written the laws of the Holy Spirit. Says St. Gregory Palamas, and asks, There, where, 
at the organ that reigns, at the throne of grace, where every thought of the soul is found in the heart. As we can see, the saints have placed the center, the basis of our mind and thoughts in the heart, and they are not wrong. The Holy Scriptures positively assures us many times about this. We will not mention the related passages because they are many. However, we will refer to the following for those who would like to read further from the New Testament. See the Holy Gospel, St. Matthew chapter 9, verse 4, Matthew chapter 15, verses 18 to 19, Mark chapter 2, verse 6, and verse 8, Luke chapter 1, verse 51, Luke chapter 2, verse 35, Luke chapter 2, verse 51, and Luke chapter 3, verse 15, Luke chapter 5, verse 22, Luke chapter 9, verse 47, and John chapter 12, verse 40, and Romans 1, verse 21. The Holy Trinity's Residence Thus, there in our heart, in the center and depth of our whole substance, where the queen of our being is, where our mind and thoughts are, there the Holy Spirit, sent by the Trinitarian God, has come. God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, says the Holy Scriptures. Its mission is to keep reminding our hearts with a loud voice, with a cry of our Heavenly Father. There in our heart Christ comes to dwell. He came to dwell. The Apostle Paul prays for our sake and asks God, among other wishes, that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. There in our heart dwells God. The blessed Augustine loved God very much since his return from the sinful life he was living. But as he says below in his prayer, he still wanted to find God in matter, in worldly things, in created things. But God was in his heart and not outside. Thus he was looking in vain. To quote, It was late when I loved you, my God, you who are the oldest but simultaneously in the newest beauty. It was late when I loved you, my God, and you were in my heart, and I was looking outwards, and there I was seeking you, and in everything you have created, I was foolishly attached. Joy to those who live God's presence in their heart. The heart of those people is full of sweetness and spiritual satisfaction. It is a blessed heart, holy, saved. In it dwells the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity. God's kingdom in our heart. There in the heart man lives paradise, God's kingdom, and reign from now. The kingdom of God is within you, says our Lord. God's kingdom is in us, but where in us? Where else but in our heart? Whoever wants to find God's kingdom has to search well within himself, then he will see it. He will see a place, a spiritual earth, that... But let us permit St. Isaac to describe it to us. Quote, the spiritual earth of a man with a cleansed soul is in him. The sun that glows upon this place is the light from the Holy Trinity. The air breathed by him who dwells in it is the most Holy Spirit. The life, the pleasure, the happiness of that place is Christ. This is 
God's kingdom concealed in us, according to our Lord's sayings. Try hard to enter into your internal place and you will see the heavenly place. It is one and the same thing. From one entrance you enter both. The ladder toward the kingdom of heaven is inside you. It is incarnated in your heart in a mysterious way. Submerge in it beyond the kingdom of sin and you will find in there yourself the steps which if climbed will enable you to ascend up to heaven. Moreover, the great matter of our salvation concerns chiefly our heart. In there, great and important things take place. There comes God's grace and enlightenment, as long as we want it, of course. In there, we feel courage and optimism, joy, and the delight that God grants to those who love him. There reigns peace. There in our heart, the Holy Spirit has brought God's love as the Bible says, God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. But there in the heart, we need to be strong. He who has divine power in his heart fears nothing. That is why the Apostle Paul asks in his prayer, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, in your hearts. With this holy spiritual power in the heart, you will be rooted and established in love. You will have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, you will be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. The Kingdom of Sin For more, see St. Isaac the Syrian's ascetical homily number 30. To the same place of the heart, the devil also comes. There he creates his kingdom. There he creates agitation and agony. Quarrels and wars start from the heart of people. There fear exists. There hatred is installed. There wicked thoughts of shamelessness and malice develop. And from there, says our Lord, out of the heart come the evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these make man unclean. There man lives hell from now. He becomes damned. There the demons come. And as our Lord says, they come and live there. So when it is all over, that person is in a worse state than he was at the beginning. There in a man's heart, the evil spirits move about like poisonous snakes and prepare every wicked thing both for the person who has them and for others. St. Gregory Palamas says something similar. Thus, when God's grace does not dwell in man, then the demons make a nest at the bottom of man's heart like real snakes, and they never permit the heart of man to desire the good. There, says St. Nicodemus of the Holy Mountain, exist every unnatural passion and all blasphemous and prideful and shameless and wicked thoughts and all bad desires, inclinations, appetites, endeavors, and assents and the worldly things that we have acquired which are born in the heart and are found in the heart. As ashes cover the fire's spark, so have these things covered 
and cover the divine grace that we have received from holy baptism. As St. Callisto says, there in the heart are the roots and origins of all the unnatural sins which we have committed after holy baptism, through evil thoughts and deeds and which we even now do and desire to do. There in the heart is Satan, even though he is not at its core, for divine grace is at the core, as St. Diodocus of Photiki said. There every temptation goes to dwell. In the heart, as St. Gregory the Theologian mourns, as he watches with humiliation the tempter in him, you, intriguer, came in me again. You graze in the depth of my heart. There, says St. Basil the Great, sin is installed. The heart's decision is the root of the body's activities. This is so because adultery first lights like a fire in the heart of a sensual man and then creates a sinful corruption of the body by committing adultery. There, therefore, with all these temptations, sins, passions, demons, and the rest of bad things, the devil tries to conquer a man's heart. When he succeeds, then man changes in everything. Then we say, there he goes, the devil conquered him. And then he takes him wherever he wants, as the horseman rides his horse. Sin is born in man's heart, and there it lives and waits for the chance to come out with words or with actions. But even if it is never able to get out due to some obstacles, so what? Sin will live inside man's heart, so unquestionably man will be sinful, even if the sin that is in him does not become an act. Look what our Lord teaches us, using adultery as an example. Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It is possible, and this has been observed, for man to live sinfully in his heart, and to love it with his heart, and to think about it, and to desire it, and to be occupied by it constantly, but not to act it externally. Then man has a sinful heart. Then he is sinful. And if man has a sinful heart, and has loved sin with his heart, and thinks about it, and desires it, and constantly examines it, and is occupied by it, then with what will he love God? God wants us to love him, with our heart, with all our heart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, says the God's commandment. If our heart loves sin, it will not love God. If our heart thinks about evil, it won't think about God. If our heart longs for bad desires, it won't desire God. If our heart wants evil, it will not want God. God wants our heart. Give me your heart. God says to man, demanding his heart from for his throne in order to sit there like a king. But two kings cannot fit on one throne, nor two governors. Either God will sit on our heart's throne or sin. Finally, we give our heart to anyone and to anything we consider more valuable, to anything we admire as an expensive and priceless treasure. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, says our Lord. And if our more valuable and priceless treasure is God, then we give him our whole heart and love him with all our heart. If we, however, admire something else in us much, very much, then we give our heart's throne there. 
That something else might be money, it might be authority, glory, the world's opinion, the pleasure of the flesh, health, education, a woman, a man, a political party, a political leader, and so forth. Then in our hearts, sin reigns. The love from the heart. The real value of our relationship with our fellow man is measured with what we have and what we feel in our heart for him, not what the lips say or what the hands do for him. If we question a man, which of the two do you prefer? For you to hear sweet talk from your wife or for her to love you from her heart? And if we question a woman, which of the two do you prefer? For you to receive gifts from your husband or for him to love you from his heart? Obviously, both will answer, we want the heart's love and not the sweet talk or the gifts. Which man or woman is satisfied only with words that might hide much hypocrisy? Which man or woman who is deceived is satisfied with gifts? What can I do with his gifts, a wife told me once about her husband, when I know his heart is given somewhere else? In a village, an old couple was complaining about their troubles to me. Okay, but aren't your children taking care of you, I questioned them. They are taking care of us, Father, they answered inside. They're taking care of us from far away. They send us money, but what can we as old parents do with the money? We know that they don't feel anything right here in their heart for their parents. Whatever they do, they do it so that people won't accuse them. Father, there simply isn't any room in their heart for their old parents. We all want our relatives, our friends, our neighbors, and our fellow men to love us, and indeed to love us from their heart, not artificially and hypocritically. We want others to love us with their heart, in the same way the others want our heart. God wants exactly the same thing, to love him with our heart, not only with our kind words as the Jews did, to whom he complained, saying, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The Lord demands us to love him from our heart. What can he do with our gifts, our offerings, our donations, when he sees that our heart is given somewhere else? What can he do with our good deeds when he sees that we do them out of a lawful duty, or so people won't accuse us, or even more so people will praise us, or at least so we won't have a remorseful conscience? At this point, we have to emphasize that many Orthodox Christians have made a mistake. They did not care to give their heart to God. They hastened to make donations to institutions and churches. They brought to the churches candles, chandeliers, pews, iconostases. But God doesn't ask for money and chandeliers. Firstly, he demands our heart's love. If our heart is given somewhere else, then our gifts are useless. He accepts our gifts, but with a presupposition that we first give our heart to him. The same thing happens with all the good deeds that man can do. If he doesn't love God with his heart, his good deeds are barren pietism, a dull and foolish situation. St. John Chrysostom writes, Our deed and act are not as meaningful as our heart's disposition with which they are performed. Atheists also do good deeds and give donations, but without loving God.
Unfortunately, many of us Christians give a lot of meaning to our good deeds without examining the disposition of our heart with which we do them. Only the heart's values are valuable. As for the different virtues, the Orthodox faith teaches us that they are valuable as long as they have decorated our heart and as long as they are genuine and not obtained hypocritically. This is so because it is possible for us to appear virtuous, but our heart not to be virtuous. For example, our meekness is worthy as long as it is our heart's property and not an opportunity to appear momentarily meek. Our humility has the same value under the condition that it's our heart's virtue and not humility shown by our lips. Regarding both of these virtues, our Lord has taught us to imitate him and to acquire them in our heart. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Worthy is repentance for our sins, a change of direction, and so is our contrition and humility for them as long as these virtues come from our heart and not from our lips. Then it is sure that the Lord will not become wrathful against us just because we have committed sins, and he won't abandon us. Here's what is mentioned beautifully concerning this issue in the 50th Psalm. A contrite and humble heart will, God will not despise. Valuable is the application of God's commandments with which one appears to be a Christian, with the condition that the Christian actually lives the commandments and God's will in his heart. That is why the Apostle Paul writes about this in his epistle to the Romans concerning the Jews. For they believed that since they had applied the commandment of circumcision, this alone made them worthy and elite. Quote, For he is not a real Jew, a son of God, who is one outwardly, nor is true circumcision something external and physical. He is a Jew who is one inwardly, for real circumcision is a matter of the heart, spiritual, and is not literal. Worthy is charity, which is done with our heart's real love toward the poor, ill, and the weak fellow man. This is what God wants and praises, not the charity which is done with selfish and sentimental mercy, nor the mercy done in order to be seen by people. Beware, says the Lord, of practicing your piety before men in order to be seen by them. When you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your alms may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Worthy is virginity. But which virginity? First the heart's virginity, and then the body's virginity. Our Lord urges us to be careful not to lose our heart's virginity with cunning and shameful thoughts. Our church fathers insist upon the value of the heart's virginity. We read in Piman of Hermas, Do not allow prostitution to come into your heart. St. Basil the Great cries out to be careful, because it is possible to have a virgin body, but not to have a virgin heart. That's why you have to show greater care for your heart's virginity than for your body's. Even for one shameless thought, entering a virgin's heart can push it to a shameful desire. And St. Daudokos of Photiki asks, What is the use if someone preserves his body in virginity and not his heart? Is peace worthy, but which peace? Is it peace between nations? Of course not. This is something temporary and fraudulent. Worthy is the heart's peace. 
This is what we as Orthodox Christians strive for, both for ourselves and for others. Besides, this is the kind of peace the Lord brought and gave to the people, saying, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. This kind of peace must be our aim, our goal. The Holy Apostle Paul says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. This peace is what the priest means in the Divine Liturgy when he says, Peace be unto you all. Worthy is simplicity and sincerity, as long as it is not external, false, or hypocritically, but on the contrary, something of the heart. Twice the New Testament urges us to obtain simplicity of the heart. In the Epistle to the Ephesians and to the Colossians, the first Christians lived in the Holy Church for community and this kind of heart's simplicity. For every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. Worthy is faith that really saves, but which faith? The faith of the heart. It saves, as the Holy Scripture assures us. It says, If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For man believes with his heart and is so justified, and he confesses with his lips and is so is saved. And Proverbs urges us to believe in the Lord with all your heart. Worthy also are the psalms, the hymns, and doxologies toward God. But when, definitely not when we chant in order to show off our beautiful voices or to call upon the applause of the people, but when our heart chants first and then our lips, the Holy Scripture says, Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Worthy are our prayers, but not only with our lips, but especially with our heart. The book of Psalms says, I will praise you with all of my heart, O Lord my God. I will proclaim your greatness forever. Another psalm says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Our Lord does not want prayers coming from the lips with much verbosity and for the sake of others to see. That is why he urges us not to pray in front of other people and with verbosity, but in secret, internally. The Jewish nation used to glorify him and to pray only with their lips, with their tongues, and not with the heart. For this the Lord says with grievance, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. God is disgusted with hypocrisy. We must say the same things for our public prayers, for our divine liturgies, our litanies, vigils, and for our feasts. All this means nothing to God if our heart does not participate. This is so because atheists also participate in liturgies, litanies, feasts, and costs them absolutely nothing. On the contrary, they might get their profit financially or socially and politically. Let us not forget, for example, that some atheist politicians are not absent from religious feast days, who appear first and foremost on the television screen, participating in doxologies and litanies, in order to impress naive people. Our participation in the holy services, in psalmodies and in church attendance, does not mean anything to God if we don't love him with our heart, and if we don't do these things in order to express our heart's love toward our beloved God. Actually, 
With our hypocritical participation in these things, we simply fool ourselves, or also the naive people who say, he is a man of God, he is a person of the church. But we cannot fool God, because God knows our heart's depth. He is the cardiognosis, the knower of the heart of man. He himself says, I am he who searches mind and heart. St. Maximus the Confessor writes, God sees and searches to find what our aim is for every action we do. He tries to find out that whatever we do is for his sake or for some other reason. And what does he find? As he searches our heart, he finds it empty. Then everything we do, good deeds, donations, prayers, holy services, vigils, causes him disgust, indignation, and wrath because they're hypocrisies. When our Lord lived in Palestine, there were some pious people who kept every formality of religious law, and indeed with great carefulness and attention even to details. These people were called Pharisees. They were really examples of a religious human beings. They kept every religious form and were consistent in their religious duties. No one could find a fault to condemn them. That's why they felt proud making them look with scorn at people who didn't uphold all the arrangements of religious laws. With this pride, the Pharisee, of the known parable of the Lord, stood in the temple and described himself in his prayer. Also with this pride, he compared himself to the tax collector who was nearby praying. Truly, the Pharisee kept everything he described in his public prayer, but many other things he forgot to say. Besides all these true things that he narrated, our Lord condemned him and justified the tax collector, the sinner, and the violator of religious law. The Lord held a similar attitude toward all Pharisees and scribes who knew the religious law very well. On one occasion he condemned them with harsh words. Easily one might ask himself, but why, since they were religious people? But we will easily have the answer if we carefully read the Lord's sermon. Then said Jesus to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by men, for they make the phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and salutations in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you cleanse the outside of the cup and of the plate, but inside they're full of extortion and rapacity. You blind Pharisees, first cleanse the inside of the cup and of the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within they are full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. So you also 
outwardly appear righteous to men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. The Lord's condemnation is clearly seen because they care to appear as religious people, but they do not care to at all be religious people. In their heart, they did good deeds, not because their heart first wanted them and then lived them, but in order to be seen by men, or even because they thought that it was easier to be perfect in front of God. But their whole life was a hypocrisy. God, however, is disgusted with this hypocrisy. God wants us to do the opposite of what they're doing, to clean first our internal self in order for our external self to eventually become substantially clean by itself. This is what God says in the Holy Scriptures to the Israelites who do not give their heart but give gifts and perform ceremonies and sacrifices. And the things which he says to the Israelites concern all of us, his contemporary faithful. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I had enough of burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of he-goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me when there is no pure heart. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your doings from your heart. And come now, let us reason together. Though your souls are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. It is clearly shown in this part of the Holy Scriptures that God takes interest in our heart, and especially for our heart's purification, more than any gift or sacrifice of ours. Thus, there is no doubt that the Orthodox Christian needs to care for this cleanness and purification of his heart more than anything else. The Heart's Purification St. Nilos the Hermit says, Just as the glass must be clean for the person who will drink from it and desire pleasure, in the same way we must care to have our heart clean, cleaner than our body, in order to please God who wants to see it clean. It is necessary for our heart to be cleansed, since it is already dirty with many bad worldly and demonic deeds, desires, thoughts, and situations. All people deeply wish for their internal purity. And as St. Macario says, all people, whether they are Jews or Greeks, love purification. They must seek, however, to find how and in what ways the heart can be purified. All people today want their heart to be clean. Certain scientists wonder, why do contemporary people have so many detergents in you, so many soaps, shampoos, different products for cleanliness? Are they dirtier in body and clothes, clothes than people of the past? No, the same scientists answer. On the contrary, they're much cleaner than the people in the past, as concerns the body, clothes, and in their homes. Since they feel internally dirty, they feel their heart dirty, and not knowing what the cause actually is. They seek, buy, and constantly use detergents, soaps, and shampoos, and a multitude of perfumes and products to become clean. But the heart cannot be cleansed in these ways. It is certain that our hearts are not clean. The heart's dirt is deep and extensive. Not one of us is clean. 
Who is cleansed from filth? No one, says the Holy Bible. In our heart are innumerable sorts of dirt, and all this dirt has to be removed. It is necessary to throw out anything that is useless and garbage. Let greediness, the worship of money, materialism, mistrust, doubt, faithlessness leave from there. The worship of the flesh, cunning thoughts, pride, jealousy, envy, hatred, injustice, anger, malice and malevolence, selfishness, wickedness, fear, audacity, cowardice, resentment, hypocrisy, impatience, inferiority, contempt, irony, censure, fashion, madness, gluttony, superstition, passions, and many more bad things must be removed from the heart. It is necessary for our heart to be purified as soon as possible from all these. But how can the heart's purification be accomplished? Our heart's purification is really a difficult task. But this truth must not startle us, nor must we fear it. So what if it's a difficult deed? Even if it was impossible for us humans, it would be possible for God. What is impossible with man is possible with God, says the Lord. But even for the Christian who believes, everything is possible to be done. Our Lord himself assures each one of us, saying, everything is possible for him who believes. How then will our heart be cleansed? There are many ways and many roads, as St. John Chrysostom says, for many are the roads that purify. First of all, we must say that this act is not ours from the start. It belongs to the purifying breeze of the Holy Spirit, as St. Diodokos of Photiki says in the Philokalia. Purification of our heart happens with the power of the Holy Spirit, as St. Gregory of Nyssa emphasizes. It is a deed of divine grace, as St. Macarius of Egypt assures us, God's grace comes and cleanses all filth that covers the heart, so that she may become clean. But let's not feel alone in this difficult task. Let us be sure that the difficult task of the heart's purification will be done, firstly, by the almighty grace of God, cooperating with our own ascases, our own ascetical struggles and efforts. But we must first want it and beg the Lord earnestly, praying and asking him to purify our heart and saying, Create in me a clean heart, O God. But let us see what else can and must be done on our part. To begin with, every Christian must focus inward toward his heart and search in it to become better acquainted with it, and not to undertake just a superficial search, but to search in depth and especially at those points which are much darker. The investigation must be done under the abundant light of divine grace and of the Holy Spirit. Here also the Christian must ask for this light from God so his eyes can see in the dark depth of his heart, saying, Shine within our hearts, loving Master, the pure light of your divine knowledge and open the eyes of our mind. And the light will come, but this is not enough. Honesty and humility are necessary in our investigation into the heart. If you want to look into your heart with honesty and humility and to reach, to find whatever bad thing is in there, you will definitely see it. Then the road toward purification will be opened. With God's grace and with your ascetical struggle, bad things will be removed and the heart will be cleansed. 
If you do not want to investigate your heart, if you do not want to look inward with honesty and humility, then you'll never be able to purify it. Do not think, therefore, that just because you do not see the bad things that you have in it, that they do not exist. They exist and will exist. As long as you are willfully blind, they will get bigger, they will enrage, and like other wild animals, will tear to pieces whatever good there is in you. While you will be thinking that the bad things don't exist, since you won't be seeing them, everyone else around you will be seeing them. This is so because when we have something evil in our heart, sooner or later it will surface. It will appear in our actions, in our facial expressions, in our words, in our movements. Everyone else will see it, only you won't be able to see it because you won't want to see it. I remember a Christian who had jealousy and envy in his heart for another brother. I told him this several times with the hope that he will be able to see his passion, this pathos, in his heart. But he didn't want to see it. Constantly he denied that he had such a bad thing in him. But so what if he refused it? It was very easy for even a small child to see in the grimaces of his face when the other brother was being praised. It was very easy for anyone to understand the jealousy and envy from the sarcastic words that slipped out of his mouth when he talked with others about the brother or when he conversed with him. Many came near me with hesitation and told me what they saw in that Christian, asking me to help him correct himself. He, however, could not see the jealousy that existed in his heart because he wasn't searching his heart in depth and because he didn't want to see it. He tried to hide this wound, this ulcer in his heart, but he denied that it existed and he remained uncorrected. It is certain that when an evil thing exists in your heart, it cannot be hidden. Quickly, everyone perceives it, and then the popular proverb holds true. Don't try to hide it. It cannot be hidden. There's only one solution, to see with honesty and humility the bad thing that has grown in there and to uproot it from your heart with God's grace. It is very important for man to know how clean he is and to look at his heart's condition as if he was looking in a mirror. Go ahead, therefore. This is what you have to do. First, to look in your depth and in the depth of depth. And in there, see where, whether a snake of the evil one is hiding. Do what St. Macarius urges. Enter, therefore, you who want to have a clean heart, and go into your noose, which is enslaved by sin, and look under your noose, deeper than your thoughts, in your so-called treasury of your soul, where the snake of wickedness creeps and nests. Man's heart is an incomprehensible abyss, and if you kill the snake, then you will take pride in the Lord that you have a clean heart. In the work of this investigation, use as a helper your good spiritual father. In other words, your, your elder, your Yeronda, with whom you have a close and significant relationship and who knows the depths of your heart quite well. After this sincere self-examination and investigation of the heart, there follows the first and very important way of its purification, prayer, an ardent prayer, whichever prayer, but especially the prayer of the heart. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Kyrie Jesu Christe, eleison me. 
which we must repeat many times unceasingly daily. The prayer of the heart, or otherwise known as noetic prayer, has spectacular results on the heart's purification. It acts miraculously and has cleansed numerous hearts throughout the ages. Whoever wants to cleanse his heart must use it as a strong medicine and take the regular doses often. The average dose of prayers for the Orthodox Christian to say this prayer 200 times in the morning, 200 times at noon or afternoon, and 200 times at night or after the compline service. A prayer rope or komboskini, chotki, would be practical for this. St. Nicodemus of the Holy Mountain similarly instructs Christians who live in the world, saying, And if you can't constantly occupy yourself with this noetic prayer, due to the concerns and disturbances which you have in the world, set aside one or two hours, best in the afternoon or at night, and when you withdraw yourself to a quiet and dark place, occupy yourself with this holy and spiritual work of noetic prayer. But again, this canon is not absolute. Our spiritual father can proportionately regulate our canon, our rule of prayer. But then let us not still think that in applying this canona we are finished. No. The prayer of the heart must be said secretly all day, and in this way we execute the commandment of the Holy Scripture which states, Pray without ceasing. This continual prayer of the heart will definitely bring the desired results. It is impossible, we read in the Philokalia, to purify our heart from passion-filled thoughts and to get rid of the demons from the heart without the unceasing invocation of the name of Jesus Christ. St. John Chrysostom says the following about noetic prayer in relation to the heart. A soul that does the prayer of Jesus can first see the wickedness in the innermost part of its heart and then is able to see the good. This prayer can dig up the sin that lives in the heart and the same prayer can uproot it. The same prayer can subdue the enemy, the devil, and little by little remove him completely from the heart. The name of the Lord Jesus Christ going down to the depth of the heart will subdue the snake that rules in its meadow places and will save and give life to the soul. Continue the prayer in the Lord Jesus steadily so that the heart will assimilate the Lord in it and the Lord will assimilate in him the heart in a way that both he and it become one. This, however, cannot be done in one or two days, but demands many years and much time. Much time and labor is needed for the enemy to be chased away from the heart and for Christ to be installed there. Quote. Indeed, blessed are those who unceasingly refer to the name of the Lord with the prayer of the heart in them. The all-holy and sweet name of Jesus Christ is continually cried in the depth of the heart through this cardiac and noetic prayer, as St. Nicodemus of the Holy Mountain says in his spiritual counsel. The same Holy Father urges us to occupy ourselves much more with the prayer of the heart. But instead of using my own exhortations, I present his exact words. Quote, this briefly, my beloved, is the well-known, so-called by the Holy Father's noetic and cardiac prayer, of which if you want to widen your knowledge, read the sermon of St. Nikiforos in the book of the Holy Philokalia. 
the sermon of St. Gregory of Thessaloniki about those who live in sacred silence in Hezekiah, and the 100 chapters by Callistos and Ignatius Xanthopoulos, as well as the writings of Gregory of Sinai. I ask you sincerely with the prayer which you say every day according to the ancient tradition of the Church, to occupy yourself with this heartfelt and noetic prayer and have this as a continuous and everlasting task, speaking within the heart by the internal word and the sweet and beloved name of Jesus, the name desired by all humanity and the universe as well, comprehending Jesus through your mind, desiring and loving Jesus through the will, returning toward Jesus all the powers of your soul and asking mercy from Jesus both with contrition and humility. If you cannot always occupy yourself with this, due to worldly concerns and agitations, at least have one or two hours scheduled. Best in the afternoon and in the quiet and dark place, withdraw yourself, working hard for this sacred and spiritual task, because I inform you that from this you will greatly enjoy a benefit and you will harvest an abundant crop. The second way toward the heart's purification is repentance, true repentance. This is repentance that begins from inside, from our depth, with self-censure and self-accusation, with a search for the good, with hunger and with thirst for all those holy and good things that are missing from us. True repentance, first of all, means change of attitude, change of thoughts, of desires, of decisions, and change of faith and hope. And after this, there is a change of action and life. True repentance means to renounce the world, renounce the devil, and to renounce our own self. True repentance means to accept God, His will, thoughts, and desires. This repentance has great power over the issue of the heart's purification. Clement of Alexandria says, True repentance is capable of purifying man. Related to repentance is the third way toward the heart's purification. It is the tears of mourning and grief for our sins. In this bath of tears, the Christian's heart is completely washed and purified. Our Holy Fathers greatly believed in the power of tears for the heart's purification. And they urge us to cry with grief in order to succeed. St. Isaac the Syrian says that this purification demands labor and grief and sorrows with contrition and tears and weeping of long duration. St. Simeon the New Theologian also says that tears cleanse the heart and make it a temple of the Holy Spirit. He himself prays to God, beseeching him by saying, With tears whiten me, cleanse me with this, my Christ. Nothing can escape you not even a teardrop, not even a part of it. Athanasios the Great writes, For tears are a great virtue, a big achievement. Through tears, great sins are forgiven. St. John Chrysostom says, Tears have great power. The martyrs pour out blood. Sinners pour out tears. However, something else also happens with tears, which is very important. As much as we grieve, and cry with our many tears for our many sins, so does our heart and mind become purified. And as much as our heart and mind become purified, so much more do we cry. 
Why? Because having cleansed our heart and mind from the tears, we're able to see. We see the truth for the future. And he who sees the future pours out many tears. For what reason? Let us listen to what St. Athanasius the Great says about this. Those who have their minds and intellects eyes, the noose cleansed while they're still on earth, see the punishments of Hades and the eternal torments which sinners are tortured with. They see the eternal fire. They see the outer darkness and the weeping and gnashing of teeth. They also see the heavenly gifts that God gave to the saints and the glories and the crowns and the holy and royal apparel and the brightly lighted houses and the unutterable pleasures of eternal life. And what else can I say? They see the greatest miracle of all, God. This is so because he who has a clean heart and mind can also see God with the eyes of his soul. How can he not cry out and grieve, he who sees all these? Because he cries and bewails to be rescued from the terrible things of hell. And again he cries and earnestly requests to be worthy of these heavenly riches. St. Isaac the Syrian writes something similar. Blessed are those with clean hearts, because there isn't a moment when they will not enjoy the pleasure of tears. And this way they always see the Lord. Even though tears are still in their eyes, they are enabled to see the revelations of the Lord, and there is no such thing for them as prayer without tears. These are the consequences of tears that cleanse our inner atmosphere, just as we can see everywhere and everything clearly as it happens exactly with the earth's atmosphere after a rainfall. How wonderful the clean atmosphere is! How clear everything looks! and great distances seem so small. In the same way, our distance from God and the heaven seems now very little, and seeing this, the, the clean heart gains courage and continues its journey to God and toward the kingdom and reign of heaven. We must mention and emphasize one more drastic medicine for the heart's purification. It is participating in the church's life, in the life of worship, we must participate in divine liturgies, in holy services, and in every holy ceremony. St. Dionysios the Areopagite says, Holy ceremonies and services have a divine power and they cleanse us. St. Maximus the Confessor adds that the holy ceremonies are purification, illumination, and completion. But the most drastic influence on our heart is the means of grace and indeed the holy sacraments, and especially the holy mystery in the sacrament of confession, where the heart is purified with the forgiveness of sins and the visit of divine grace. Another way which purifies the heart is knowledge of the word of God. By studying his word or listening to the sermons of the church, the heart purifies itself. I remind my fellow readers of the Lord's words to his disciples you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. I also remind you that Clement of Alexandria emphasizes that with the knowledge of the divine will, our purification comes very quickly. If we therefore want to purify our heart, we must do nothing but study and listen to the word of God. 
Also, our Holy Fathers urge us to purify our hearts by applying God's commandments. As St. Isaac the Syrian says, let us not hope that our heart will be purified without the execution of God's commandments. Likewise, we must not wait for our heart's purification if we don't try to dismiss our passions. This is because, as the same saint says, the heart's purification is acquired only if our passions are defeated. So if anyone has some passion, such as drinking or smoking, card playing, prostitution, and so forth, let him be taught by these words. One more practical way to purify our heart is the remembrance of God, and especially the Son and the Logos, or the Word of God. It is possible for us to constantly bring to our mind the Lord Jesus Christ and his life on earth, the appearance of his face, his words, his miracles, his acts, his name, his birth, his transfiguration, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. Let's remember what St. Daudokos of Fotiki writes in the Philokalia. He who wants to purify his heart, let him warm her constantly with the memory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This remembrance of Christ's name must constantly warm the heart without intermissions. You who have started this beautiful effort of remembering God's name must not leave your effort for even a little, for as we read in the Philokalia, it is possible for your effort to be in vain. Because he who wants to purify gold melts it in a continuous strong fire. Even if for a little while he leaves the fire to burn out, the gold once again coagulates and becomes hard and cannot be cleansed. In the same way, he who has started to have remembrance of God loses that which he has acquired through this memory due to the interruption of this remembrance. The characteristic of a man who loves virtue is to have unceasing memory of God and with this to purify his heart from everything earthly. St. John Climacus writes in his sermon to Pimon, he who wants to see the Lord in himself tries hard to purify his heart with the unceasing remembrance of God. Whenever we recall God's name in our memory with fervor, says St. Gregory Palamas, then we feel the divine like a desire that gushes up from the bottom of our heart. One more way of purification of the heart is fasting, but real fasting as orthodoxy means it. The one which pertains to the body, the fast of the foods, and the one that pertains to the soul, the fast from passions. This kind of fasting truly has purifying capabilities. It purifies the mind and the heart. St. Athanasius the Great says, Do you see what fasting does? It expels demons and gets rid of wicked thoughts, and it brightens the noose and makes the heart clean. The holy services of Great Lent many times refer to this purification of the inner person through fasting. The heart's purification needs certain conditions in order to be attained. It needs silence, Hezekiah. It needs a calm life. This is why Basil the Great says, silence is the beginning of the heart's purification. You can't clean your heart when you are broken into a thousand pieces and concerns. Disorders, sounds, anxieties, commotions, and trials do not help. Noise in general doesn't help. 
nor does verbosity or even good times. Trips, constant walks, outside interests, they don't help. A worldly life filled with festivities prevents the purification of the heart. It is also necessary for the Orthodox Christian to get away from temptations. Escape is very helpful for purification. Keep away from pictures, articles, and TV programs that dirty the heart, and from bad company, from bad conversation, and improper jokes that stain the inner being of men and women. Escape and save yourself. Finally, we must also say that besides the ways and means that we've mentioned, there is another way of life that offers the possibility of the purification of the heart. It is the angelic life, monasticism. This is the orthodox monastic life, and especially the orthodox synobium. Blessed are those who have chosen to live this, this common life. In this wonderful and thrice-blessed way of life, their hearts are purified much quicker than those Christians in the world, lay and clergy. This is how the heart is purified. Of course, this purification does not happen in one day. Time and effort are needed. This cleansing comes slowly and in stages. At this point, I must identify a danger, the danger of pride that always awaits behind the first accomplishment. Our heart is dirty in all of its sides and corners and dimensions. If a corner was cleansed, that doesn't mean that it was cleansed completely. And it would be very hasty and unwise for Christians to think that they have accomplished a lot, thus allowing arrogance and egotism to overcome them. Accordingly, St. John Climacus says the following, When some people struggle and fight with bravery and conquer and drive away the demon of fornication completely from their heart, and when the constant thoughts of fornication become lessened from the heart, then they approach vanity and or haughtiness. For the person who has cleansed a corner of his heart, St. Gregory Palamas says that if he considers himself purified, he is mistaken, self-deceived, and with his arrogance he opens a large door against himself and is always in delusion without knowing it. If again, knowing his heart's filth, he doesn't take pride in that small cleansing, but helped by this, sees much clearly his heart's impurity, he then makes progress in humility. He adds more sorrow for his sins. And continuing, he uses suitable means of therapy for every part of his soul. He thus heals the soul's practice by practical means. The intellectual or cognitive part of the soul is cleansed by means of true knowledge. The soul's theoretical component is cleansed with prayer. Thus, by these means, he reaches perfection, true and standardized, according to spiritual criteria, purification of the noose and the heart. It is impossible for one to reach this level of purification except through defined practical spiritual exercises, persistent ascetical training, obedience, and through spiritual vision and prayer. Moreover, if some accomplish the complete cleansing of their mind, they must not feel pride because, as it was already mentioned, the mind is not the heart but part of the heart. The heart is a depth and an abyss, 
and an incomprehensible chaos, as St. Macario states. And thus it is foolish for one to think its purification has finished because a part of it has been cleansed. The attempt to purify the heart is an endless process, an act. We will advance from purification to purification, and we will unceasingly rejoice in Christ because parts of our heart are being cleansed. This is why the housewife rejoices as she sees one by one the rooms of her house being cleaned. The Riches of a Pure Heart When the heart is finally cleansed, one then acquires great and important riches. First, as it was mentioned, man obtains the ability to see clearly. The heart has eyes, according to the information found in the Holy Scripture. Therefore, these eyes can be cleansed. As Basil the Great says, when the eyes are cleansed, as when a discharge is wiped away, one can see the beauties of God's glory. He can see what is good and what is bad, what is profit and what is loss, and which is the truth and which is the lie. The Lord has performed his miracle and the eyes are cleansed as he listens to the prayer which each Christian says, each great Lent. As a blind man out of my heart, I cry to you, Son of God, give light to the eyes of my heart. Another good fruit of a clear heart is the purity of all of the rest of man, and indeed of his five senses. Let us see how St. Isaac the Syrian says this. The heart is that which contains and governs the senses. It is their root. It is the root. If the root is holy, the branches will be holy. That is, if the heart is pure, then the senses will also be pure. Afterward, man with a heart that is already pure becomes a, the residence of God, because as St. Macarius of Egypt beautifully says in his spiritual homilies, when a nobleman comes to live in a house and this house is filthy, they clean it, making it neat and decorate it and sprinkle perfume around the house. How much more then should the house of our heart be, in which the Lord himself is about to live, it needs much decoration in order for the immaculate and all-pure one to enter in and to rest in it. In such a heart, God and the whole heavenly church finds rest. Athanasius the Great points out to us that besides all these goods, the pure heart acquires another ability. It is capable, he says, in seeing in herself the mirroring of God. For as St. Gregory of Nyssa adds, it sees in its purity the icon that God gave to the first created Adam, the God who created us in his own image. But it can also see God himself. It acquires, in other words, the grace of seeing God. This is assured by the Lord himself who says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. It is also assured by all the interpreters of the scriptures, as, for instance, Clement of Alexandria, who says, The man who is pure in heart will see God face to face. Likewise, the pure in heart sees divine radiances, as St. John Climacus assures us. But before him, the Holy Apostle assures us that God made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. There are other riches of a pure heart. Knowledge of God's wisdom comes to everyone according to his purification. 
as much as the heart becomes pure, that is, how much more knowledge it can obtain. The Holy Scripture states, Wisdom abides in the clean heart of a man. Another fruit of the pure heart is the following, which St. John Climaca speaks about. The pure and upright heart is carefree and free from every worldly care and noise, and thus sails without care in the ship of innocence and quietness, without fears and confusion, until having a good voyage it reaches the heavenly harbor. Also a Christian can have true love, but only with a pure heart. St. Daudokos of Fotiki very beautifully says that as much as the heart is perfectly cleansed, so much love is obtained, and so much more is fear decreased in man. The Christian with the pure heart has a characteristic sign. He is so good that he looks at everyone around him as good and pure. You will never hear him say that person A or person B is impure and dirty in his acts, his life, or his heart. While on the other hand, the Christian who does not have a pure heart suspects everyone of being impure and bad. Once they asked St. Isaac from which sign would a man know that his heart has reached purification, and he answered, When he reaches the point of seeing all men as good, and no one appears to him impure and profane, then man is truly pure in his heart. And they asked him again, What does the purification of the heart mean in a few words? And he answered, For the heart to be merciful to every created nature. These and many more are the riches of a pure heart. But I wonder if we can give a general definition of what a pure heart is. We can't. The divinely enlightened Simeon, the new theologian, however, gives this general definition. A pure heart is the heart which does not become bothered by some passion only, but does not even think of anything wicked or worldly. It has in itself only the remembrance of God with great love for him. It is united with God so as not to have anything distract it, neither the dis dissatisfactions of this life nor the joyful ones, but it lives seeing the third heaven, and as if it has reached paradise and sees the engagement of the saints with the goods that God has promised them. A true sign and sure sample of a pure heart is for man to know how clean he is and to see his heart's condition as if seeing in a mirror. From a pure heart. From this pure heart that has all these rich fruits, God wants and waits for our love and our prayer. For this we should not say that love must come from the heart, but that it must come from a pure heart. This is so because God's commandment is quite clear, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Holy Scriptures, whereas the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart. Also the Apostle Peter tells us the same, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth which the Holy Spirit teaches, concerning a sincere love for the brethren, love one another with a clean heart, love unceasingly. We should say the same for prayer, which the Lord wants from a pure heart, as the Holy Scripture says, as it urges St. Timothy to have spiritual relations and competitions with those who pray to the Lord with a pure heart. The heart is being warmed and enlightened, our heart can be warmed, but it can also be chilled. It is warmed 
as long as it has the relationships of love with God, because God is the fire that warms and enlightens. The heart, however, becomes chilled when it keeps away from God and freezes according to the relationship and bond it has with the devil. Then we say, the heart of that man has frozen, and you are a cold person. St. Seraphim of Serov says, God is the fire that lights and warms the heart, the inner person, if we feel in our heart a chill that comes from the devil, because the devil is cold, let us pray to the Lord and to come and warm our hearts with perfect love, love not only for him, but also for our neighbor. And with the presence of this warmth, the chill of the hater of good, the devil, will go away. The heart is lightened. God lightens our heart, and this is what we must ask and wait from him paying attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star God rises in our hearts, as the Apostle Peter says. We read in the Philokalia, it is worth admiring the fact that the faithful heart always brings in it the holy rays of God in the highest. That which is beyond every conception and every wonder is what God provides his light to, not from outside and incidentally, but he himself being united with the faithful, remains as light. We must certainly know that the devil prevents the holy rays of God from reaching the heart and manages to spread clouds of temptations around the heart which block it from seeing the divine rays, as St. Gregory the Theologian says. But our struggle, together with God's grace, destroys the clouds and the light once again glows in the heart. The heart rejoices. The heart rejoices. This is true. There are many causes by which it is delighted and is pleased, both material and spiritual. Let us see some of these that the Holy Bible mentions. First, we'll see the material causes, the goods that God grants to man. God gave to man the right for his heart to rejoice with all the material goods of the earth. God sends from heaven bountiful times filling our hearts with food and gladness. The Lord gives us wine which makes the heart of man glad and bread which strengthens man's heart. Wine and music delight man's heart. Marriage gladdens the heart. Come out, daughters of Zion, and behold King Solomon, his wedding day that was a day of gladness of his heart. The delight of the heart is man's life, and its joy is his longevity. Beautiful, good, and pleasing are all the earth's riches. If, however, man limits himself in delighting his heart only with these, then a moment will come when he will notice that, in essence, during his lifetime, no real profit was gained. That is why the Holy Scripture says, I said in my heart, Come and try with mirth, therefore to enjoy every pleasure, and whatsoever mine eyes desired I kept not from them, I withheld not my heart from any joy. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had worked and on all the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity. Ecclesiastes Man is afflicted with sorrows as he sees the vanity of the materialistic delights by which he committed a multitude of sins. But this is not all. A little later, condemnation it comes from God. He who delights his heart with prodigalities will be condemned. 
However, the heart is also delighted with other causes, spiritual, heavenly, and divine causes. Let us again see some of them which the Holy Scriptures mention. The heart is delighted by spiritual goods. The first spiritual good is the presence of God. Holy Scripture says, I saw the Lord always before me because he is found at my right side so that nothing evil can happen to me. The heart is delighted with the remembrance of God's name. My heart will rejoice as I will remember with reverence your name, O my God, says the psalmist. Comfort given by God delights the heart. Regarding this, the psalm states, The amount of of my worries are proportional to the comforts which you give to my heart, which delight it. This is why the Apostle Paul writes to the Colossians, I want your hearts to be comforted. With those things which I will say, I am sending Tychicus to you, who is a dear brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord, that he may encourage your hearts with the things that he will tell you. The heart is delighted when it listens to and lives in accordance with God's commandments. Again, the Holy Scriptures say, God's commandments are true and perfect and they delight the heart. The heart is delighted when it has God's help and protection. For our heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. The heart is delighted with the love of God's wisdom much more than wine and music. My heart is delighted from the blossoms of God's wisdom. My son, acquire the wisdom of God in order for your heart to delight always. The heart is delighted when peace exists. That is why the Holy Scripture gives the blessing, May the Lord give you happiness in your heart by prevailing peace in your days. There are many spiritual causes by which the heart is delighted. For at times, moreover, when the heart will rejoice due to these spiritual causes, it is not bound to be embittered, to be afflicted, or to repent that they happened. The spiritual causes do not ruin the heart. They do not subjugate her to the passions as do material goods. So the heart rejoices fearlessly, and the delight of the heart acts upon the whole man. A merry heart creates prosperity to the whole man. This also appears from a face that shines with happiness. A merry heart makes a cheerful countenance.